you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And last week we began looking at Mark chapter 13. And the issue that we have to keep in mind that we saw last week is the issue of context. As we saw last Sunday, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple complex, and one of them says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And as I said, his comments are not inappropriate. I know that's a double negative. They are appropriate. Uh, the massive stones, as I mentioned, some of the stones weighed over 100 tons. We're not sure how they got them there. Uh, there was no cement between the stones. This is uh, dry construction. The largest stone, which, by the way, is still there in Jerusalem, is over 600 tons in weight. Massive stones. And then the magnificent buildings. It was, in fact, a huge complex. And I only mentioned one part of it, and that is the main building, the temple, which had marble columns all around it, which supported a roof made of gold. It was said that the temple in Jerusalem was the most beautiful building in the world and certainly the largest and most imposing structure for hundreds of miles in any direction. And so it's no wonder that the disciples are proud of this, this complex, these stones, these buildings. And how does Jesus respond? Verse number two, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Then Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem and they go to the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the temple complex. And so they sit down, they're looking at this, and four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, ask him two questions. Verse number four, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? This is the key to this chapter. The disciples ask Jesus two questions. And what is interesting, at least in my opinion, is that Jesus doesn't really answer their questions, sort of in a vague way, but instead he tells them that they need to be watchful. They need to stand firm. Look, if you would, at verse 5. This is review from last Sunday, but let's go over it. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. They just ask him, what are the signs? What is the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed? And he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So Jesus begins his answer with a warning. Watch out that no one deceives you. And this warning then is followed by him saying that they will hear about events that I would argue are common to human history. 
wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. Uh, these things didn't simply happen before the destruction of the, of the temple. Uh, they've been going on for a while. But what Jesus wants is that his disciples will not be alarmed. His followers must learn patience, to be patient. False teachers, frightening events, natural disasters, all of these will tempt them and us to panic. And so I find it intriguing that they want to know when, when will this happen and how do we know, this, you know, what's the sign that the temple will be destroyed? And Jesus basically says, don't be deceived and don't panic. Be on your guard. I'm going to take a detour here for a bit. Bear with me. Some of this we've looked at before. But there are three things that I want to bring up with regard to chapter 13. The first is that as human beings, we have a desire uh, to be told predictions. We want to be told what's going to happen in the future. And, it, and this is not simply a, a Christian thing. It is, but I think it's a very human thing. Uh, we've talked about this before, usually at the time of Christmas, around Christmas time, about the difference between promise and prediction. Um, there is a difference between promise and prediction. Even in our everyday lives, we know that there is a difference between someone making a promise and then someone making a prediction. Uh, I do think in our culture, people would prefer someone who can predict the future rather than someone who keeps a promise, which is sad because it's hard for society to stay together if people, in fact, do not keep their promises. Again, this is something we've looked at before, but just to remind you, a promise involves a commitment to a personal relationship. A promise is made between two parties, between two persons. It presupposes that there's a relationship between them. A prediction, on the other hand, is quite impersonal. And, but, but this is a whole other sermon. As human beings, we are made in the image of God. We are persons. We are to have personal relationships with others. But because of the fall, it's like we would prefer the impersonal. We prefer predictions. We'd, yeah, the promise, that, that gets kind of sticky because you have to have a relationship. Um, you know, a promise is made to someone. A prediction is made about someone. And so if it's about someone, then I, do, I don't have to know that person. I don't have to have a relationship with them, talk to them, you know, have any contact with them. Just tell me what's going to happen to them. God made predictions in the Old Testament about pagan nations, but to his people, he made promises. God made promises beginning with Abraham and through the rest of the Old Testament. He made a commitment to his people. He had a relationship with them. Secondly, a promise requires on some level uh, acceptance. If I make a prediction, you're like, well, whatever, yes or no, I, I don't know if it's going to happen. On the other hand, if I make a promise, you have to respond on some level. God made a promise to Abraham, and what did Abraham do? He believed. A promise involved faith. The third thing that we saw 
with regard to a promise is that it involves ongoing levels of fulfillment. A prediction is flat, okay? It either happens or it doesn't, okay? That's it, end of story. Uh, if it doesn't happen, then we might try to come up with excuses or explanations as to why it didn't happen, but that's pretty much it. But a promise is very different. Because it involves a personal relationship and commitment, it has a dynamic that goes beyond just the details of what was said. So, when a couple enters into marriage, they make promises to each other. I happen to perform the wedding for Oscar and Zib and for Jason and Gwen. And among the things that we heard that I said, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Fulfilling this, these promises will take various forms. As we get older, as we change, children come along, things are different, but the promise is still there. The words don't need to be changed, but the relationship, in fact, uh, uh, let me see, it dictates how, in fact, we will keep those promises. So that's the first thing. Uh, as Christians, as human beings, I don't know that we're so keen on promise. We want predictions. And so most, I don't know if I said most, most of the people I've read in preparation for this series see chapter 13 as talking about predictions about the end of the world. And in fact, uh, in my edition of the NIV, it says signs of the end of the age. Uh, yeah, that's not what this is about. They ask questions, Jesus answers the questions. And it's not about the end of the age, it's about the destruction of the temple. The second thing I would have you consider is that our desire to have predictions made and come to pass have caused us to redefine what a prophet is. If you look it up in Merriam-Webster, there are two definitions. A person who predicts the future, someone who declares publicly a message that he or she believes has come from God or a God. Um, actually, a person who predicts the future is definition number two but we tend to make it definition number one. Uh, I remember when I was young, I don't know how old I was, uh, certainly before I left home, I was always puzzled by something that you read in the Old Testament, the schools of the prophets. There were six schools, in fact, one in Ramah, Bethel, Gilgal, Jericho, Carmel, and Samaria. And my reaction was, whoa, you can go to school to predict the future? because that's what I saw a prophet as, someone who predicts the future. But this was not the function of a prophet. Prophecy is telling the truth, and it is grounded in the character of God who speaks the truth. He is a truth-telling God. And so those who went to the schools of the prophet were to learn God's law so that they could then turn around and teach it to other people. God's law is moral by nature. And so they would say to people, this is how you're supposed to live. You're not living this way. You need to repent and get back on the right path. So the prophets in the schools learned the character of God revealed in the law, a God who tells the truth, and the application of that law 
to the people of Israel. Particularly when we get to the later prophets, they're always calling people to come back to God's way, to repent, to return to God's way. By the way, this means that the, the title, I guess you'd call it, false prophet, is an oxymoron. Because a prophet is someone who tells the truth. That's what a prophet does. And how can you be telling the truth and then at the same time be false? By the way, this whole thing that I'm talking about, it helps me understand at least something that we read in Amos chapter 7. Uh, it's verse uh, 14 that I always think of, but let me read beginning of verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest at Bethel, that's where one of the schools of the prophets were, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. That's someone who predicts the future. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of his kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from standing, tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. In other words, Amos is like, Hey, I'm sorry, I didn't go to the school of prophets. Okay? I didn't go to prophet school. Not a prophet, and neither was my dad. By the way, in some of the newer versions, rather than school of prophets, it's sons of prophets, that this seemed to be a hereditary thing. Uh, a prophet is someone who tells the truth. The third thing is that in our desire to know what will come to pass, we forget that there are things that we already know that we're supposed to act upon. A verse that you should, rem you should memorize, certainly remember, is Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is near the end of the Torah. It's Deuteronomy is the fifth book. It has 32 chapters, I believe, 33. We're now near the end. And this is what it says. And it's easy to remember, 29, 29, okay? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. In other words, God knows the future because God's already in the future. But those are secret. They belong to him. They don't belong to us. We don't need to know them. We want to know them, but we don't need to know them. God has, in fact, revealed certain things to us. They belong to us. They are ours. And we are to follow them and obey them. This is what we find in Mark 13. The disciples are given the barest of information in response to their question, when and what sign. But they are told in different ways how they are to act. If you look at verse number 23, which was the last verse last Sunday that we looked at, so be on your guard, there it is, again that warning, I have told you everything ahead of time. And one, one might easily respond, you haven't told us anything. I've told you everything? Well, he's told his disciples what they need to know. 
and that is that they are to be on their guard. They are not to panic. They are not to be deceived. Okay. Let's pick it up where we left off last week. Verse number 24. Verses 24 through 27. Uh, certainly the most difficult passage in chapter 13. The language is language that we're not really that familiar with. Verse 24. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory, great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The language that we find in verses 24 and 25 referred to as apocalyptic. That is, events are described in cosmic cataclysmic uh, language. The event that Jesus is talking about, because he said that the temple would be destroyed, is going to happen in less than 40 years. It's going to happen in 70 AD. One million Jews will be killed and many more will be enslaved. The year before that, in 69 AD, there were four emperors in Rome, one after the other, all within one year. Nero, who we know about, then Otho, Vitellius, and finally Vespasian. Each time it was with violence, with murder, and civil war erupted. As Vespasian is becoming the new emperor, his son, his adopted son Titus, is marching into Jerusalem to destroy it. He burned the temple, he destroyed the city, and he killed thousands upon thousands, many of them by crucifixion. Let me ask you, what kind of language would you use to describe such a year? Well, Jesus used the language of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10, See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Now, I think we struggle because we are just confirmed and committed literalists. You know, the idea of metaphorical language, of poetic language, of apocalyptic language, yeah, that just really doesn't work. But have you ever considered, have you ever heard someone say, or have you ever said, as a result of some horrible event, some great tragedy, my world has been turned upside down? You don't mean that literally. It's a way to express great distress at what has happened. Or someone could say, yeah, my, the lights went out for me. It's over. What we hear in the language of Jesus' day is that the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall from the sky, and so on. I think his disciples knew he's talking about something really horrible that's going to happen and he describes it because the stars don't fall to earth we know how the galaxy at least we think we do is set up it's language to describe something terrible that is going to happen by the way at this point if Jesus is talking about the end of the world 
if that's what this is about, then why does he tell them to flee to the mountains? I mean, if the world's over, you might as well stay where you are. Why flee to the mountains? But then this brings up verses 26 and 27, which frankly, I must confess, present difficulties. Some would say it refers to the end of time, and I could see why that would seem to be the case. But I think it has to be seen within the context of the whole chapter and not just seen by themselves. Now verses 28 to 31, the lesson of the fig tree. Earlier in the Passion Week on Monday, you may remember that Jesus sees the fig tree. It's in leaf. It's at a distance. He goes over. There are no figs on it because it's not yet season. But Jesus says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then Tuesday morning, Peter says, look, the tree you curse has withered up. As we've seen, the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, those events, one explains the other. Now, Jesus uses the fig tree, not the one that he cursed, okay, as a metaphor, as a lesson. Verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. You know, you don't, if you don't have a calendar, you know summer is near when in fact the fig tree, the, the, the twigs get tender, the leaves come out, you know summer is almost here. Verse 29, even so when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, Jesus says when you see these things happening, well, what things? What things will you see happen? Well, if you go back to verses 6 through 8, verse 14, 21, and 22, um, not the apocalyptic language, you know, like, oh, when the sun goes dark and the moon doesn't shine and the stars fall. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the false teachers, the false prophets. Earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars. There were basically four civil wars in 69 AD. Yeah. Then you know, in fact, that these things are about to happen. And then he says, this generation will not pass away. And if a generation is considered to be 40 years in length, then in truth, what Jesus said would happen in 70 AD. And then he says, my words will not pass away. He is a prophet. He is speaking the words of God. He is speaking the truth, and the truth will always out. Verses 32 to 37. Now it's the end of the chapter, and we, should, we shouldn't be surprised. It is about the need to be ready. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I think perhaps one of the most intriguing parts of this 
and again, one that has been misunderstood, is that no one knows when this is going to happen except the Father, the hour or the day. The angels in heaven don't know it, and Jesus himself, the Son, does not know it. And again, this is about the destruction of the temple. Jesus knows that it will happen within a generation. He warns his disciples to be ready to flee. Okay? But the exact hour, the day, he doesn't know. And this reveals something about the incarnation, the mystery. Jesus is man and God, and yet he didn't know everything. The things he knew were given to him by the Spirit. One might say, how did Jesus know that the temple would be destroyed? How did Jesus know it would happen within a generation? But he didn't know exactly when it would happen. We would think, you know, if you know that much, that you should know the rest. Was he not a prophet? Absolutely. As he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek and king. What does a prophet do? He speaks the truth. He calls people to change their ways, to repent. And he calls God's people to stand firm and to be on their guard. And that's what Mark 13 is about. The focus of the chapter comes together in these last verses. Verse 33, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. And then in a parable, I think the last parable that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark, he says, listen, you've got this guy and he owns a house. And apparently he has money because he has servants. So he's going on a journey and each servant is assigned a specific task. And there is one servant whose task is to watch the door, the gate, to come into the property. That is his job. Okay? That's all he's supposed to do. And he is to keep watch because he doesn't know, nobody knows when the owner is coming back. And Jesus divides the night up into four, four sections. It could be in the evening, that's six to nine. It could be at midnight, that's nine to 12. It could be when roosters crow, that's 12 to three. By the way, in visiting my mom in the Philippines, I was always amazed and annoyed to hear roosters crowing at two in the morning. I'm like, guys, I think you're supposed to wait till dawn. No, 12 to three, the roosters crow. And then at dawn, from three to six a.m., when the owner comes, will he find that servant assigned to the gate, to the door? Will he be sleeping? Don't let him find you sleeping. And so the message of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, is be alert. Be on guard. You don't know when this will happen. Jesus says it would happen within a generation. But beyond that, you don't know. So don't be deceived by false teachers, okay? Don't panic when terrible things begin to happen. Stand firm, be on your guard. So I said, this is a chapter that has been mis much misunderstood because people have failed to realize the disciples ask questions, Jesus answers the question, okay? He doesn't say, oh, yeah, never mind what you ask. Here, let me, let me tell you about something else. He is answering their questions. And he doesn't answer it, I think, in the way that they want. Frankly, not in the way that I would expect. 
maybe even that I would want. If I say, when is this going to happen? I, I want some specifics. Tell me when this is going to happen. But again, it's because we are addicted to prediction rather than to truth. So Jesus does in fact tell them it's going to happen. And he gives some details. It will happen within a generation. Uh, it will be a time of chaos. But when, han- when has human history not been a time of chaos? He spends most of the time, as I mentioned last week, 19 imperatives. He keeps telling them, don't be deceived. You need to be warned. Don't panic. Be on your guard. So rather than setting up a timeline, which we would prefer, because timelines are very impersonal. As someone who teaches history, I find that students really resent the idea of a timeline. Because parts of us want the personal. Yeah, but most of us, we just, just the facts. Tell us when this is going to happen. Some people see this chapter as dealing with the second coming. Um, and it's intrig- as intriguing as that is, it doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the context. The disciples didn't understand the first coming. Why is Jesus now going to be telling them about the second coming? They still don't understand what he is about. Why should he then tell them of something of which they would have no understanding? One last thing. You might ask me, okay, Damon, is this... Chapter 13, is this promise or prediction? I would say this is prophecy. This is prophecy. This is truth telling. The God of truth through his son tells the truth. And the truth tells us that we need to be careful that we're not deceived. That there are false teachers out there. I think there always have been since Jesus was here. And in times of disasters, boy, you see a fresh crop of false teachers telling us they know why these things happen and why this happened and what will be the result. Don't panic. Be alert. Stand your ground. And trust in the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have been given so much, but we want more. You have revealed yourself in your word. A God who tells the truth. You who made us, we are made in your image. You've told us how we are to live. But we want to know more. We want to know when certain things are going to happen. We want to know about the future. That's why people go to palm readers or read the horoscope. But as your people, I think we are just as guilty. We see prophecy in terms of prediction instead of the truth being told by a personal God to those made in his image. I understand that it is easier said than done. Don't panic. 
even don't be deceived, particularly in difficult times when we grasp left and right for some answers. But may we take to heart the words of Jesus to his disciples, and we are his disciples, that we are to stand firm, be on our guard, and know that you are in control. By your grace, I've done the best I could with this chapter. I, I trust that it is accurate. May your spirit work in our hearts. Help us to see the truth of what Jesus is saying and put it into practice. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for Rosa's nephew, just diagnosed with MS. Give them grace, give them wisdom during this time and stand by them, draw them to yourself. And we give thanks for Nia's birthday today, for her life, and ask that you would continue to watch over her, Jason and Gwen, as they raise her. Thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.